Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, howdy WCC. It's good seeing everybody. Thank you, music team, for that. The, you don't know it yet, but the music was just perfect. It goes along with the sermon very well. Um, we just want to thank uh, you guys for your prayers for Andy's mom. We were visiting Mississippi last week in South Mississippi. And you think it's hot and humid here? Man, go down to South Mississippi. It is hot and humid. But uh, we appreciate your prayers for her, and, uh, and it's just a blessing. It's good to be back. It's just good to be back in our, in our home church. All right, well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we are continuing in a sermon series from the book of Colossians. So Colossians is in the New Testament. If you go to the right of uh, like First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, the little book of Colossians. And just as a recap, Paul is writing to this uh, new church plant, like WCC, he's writing to a new church plant in central Turkey, that's where Colossi is. And um, Colossi was, is a, was a little town, like Monroe, I compared the church at Colossi to WCC, it was a church plant, they were meeting in a home, it's in a little town called, called Colossi, and it's, it's this little river valley, and I think next week I might show a picture again, just to give you an idea of what it looks like. But around the area, there's another little town about 10 miles away called Hierapolis and another one called Laodicea. And Laodicea is mentioned in the book of Revelation. So these are just, and I keep stressing this because Paul is writing a real letter to real people at a real place in time. This is not some myth out of nowhere. This is a real letter that Paul's writing. And Paul's writing this from prison. And it's probably, the date of the letter is probably in the mid-50s A.D. or early 60s A.D. And one of the things that I just love as, I, as I've studied this and just been thinking about Paul, and this is the way that we should be, Paul has not even met the vast majority of people at this little house church. He's, he's met maybe one or two, Epaphras he knows. Um, but Paul, even though he hasn't met these folks, he takes time to write this letter to this tiny little church meeting in a house because he cares. He cares about the church, and he wants to build them up. So I just love that about the Apostle Paul. One of the things that Paul is dealing with when he writes this letter is some false teachings in the area. And we're not certain, but it looks like most of the false teachings centered around who Jesus is. And so they were, it looks like they were teaching that Jesus is just a good man. He's not God, or if he's God, he's only partially divine. So that was a false teaching. They were saying that Jesus is more like an angel, maybe. So one of the things that Paul is doing at the beginning of this letter to the church at Colossae is stressing that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the maker and the creator of all things, that Jesus is really big, he's huge, and Paul wants our minds to be focused on Christ. And this is so important for us because what we fix our minds on, what we think about, this is what molds us into who we are. This is what transforms us into the type of people that we're going to be. So whatever you fix your mind on, whatever you fixate on, this ends up being, if it's not on God, if it's not on Christ, it ends up being an idol. If you constantly think about money, or if you constantly think about your job, or, or whatever the thing is that you fixate, entertainment, pleasure, it becomes a controlling thing in your life. 
So what Paul wants to tell us is to fix our minds on Christ. In fact, later on in Colossians in, in Colossians 3.2, Paul says to fix your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. So, so, God, so Paul wants us to set our minds on Christ. Okay? So the last time I preached, we studied verses 15 to 17. So I'm going to read through that. So this is Colossians 1, 15 to 17. And Paul's talking about who Jesus is. And he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So Jesus is the maker and the sustainer of all things. And one of the things I talked about last week, last time, it was a few weeks ago, um, is just this, Jesus is the maker and sustainer of the universe. He's the maker and sustainer of all creation. And so one illustration I used was if you take a Frisbee and you say, okay, the size of our solar system is the size of this Frisbee, entire solar system, if you could fit it in a Frisbee, the Milky Way galaxy which is a medium-sized galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy would be the size of the planet Earth squished down. So our solar system is this big, size of a Frisbee, and the medium-sized Milky Way galaxy would be about the size of the Earth. So I talked about how if you, you know, in the Star Wars, they go the speed of light. If you were to get into the Millennium Falcon with Han Solo and Chewie, and you make the jump to light speed, and you go from one side of our little galaxy to the other, it wouldn't take you two hours like in Star Wars. It would take 100,000 years if you were going light speed to go from one side of our little galaxy to the other. And what Paul is saying is Jesus has all of this in the palm of his hand. Jesus has all of the universe in the palm of his hand. He controls everything. So Paul has been saying that Jesus is the, the maker and sustainer of the creation. He's the Lord of creation. Now in verses 18 and 19, he transitions and he says that Jesus is the Lord of the new creation. And we're going to see that as we go through these verses. And this is so important for us because to have a correct understanding of who Jesus is, to have a correct understanding of how big Jesus is, if we do this, if our minds are fixed on him, what we will realize is that he is in control of everything. Jesus is in control of everything. He's got everything under control. I don't know if you thought about this, but we have very little control over the things in our lives. We don't have much control over our health, a little bit, not much. We don't have a lot of control over things like our, even our jobs. Do you think you have control over your spouse? Good luck with that. You do not have control over your spouse. Do you think you have control over your kids? Wait till they grow up, okay? You do not have control over very many things in our lives. And I think what are the things that helps us in understanding about how big Jesus is, is that he has everything under control, and we can give this over to him. And this is what faith is, is living with an understanding that Jesus has everything in control. And so we want in our minds for Jesus to be bigger and bigger in our lives and for our minds to be fixed on him. And, and this is not, you're not going to experience transformation if the only time that you focus on Jesus is on Sunday mornings, if the only time that you fix your minds on Christ is on Sunday mornings, you're not going to have a very much transformation in your life. 
God calls us to fix our minds on the things above, on Christ, throughout our week. And this is where transformation takes place. I saw a thing this week that said, the, the average American now spends most of their waking hours staring at a screen. Did you know that? The average American spends most of their waking hours staring at a screen. TV screen, phone, tablet, what, computer, whatever. If our minds are constantly, and some of us have to do that in our jobs, right? But if, if our minds and our thoughts are constantly looking at a screen away from who Christ is, we are not going to experience the transformation that God wants for us. Amen. All right. All right. So God wants us to focus on who Jesus is. Let's go to Colossians verses 18 and 19. And what we're going to see, this is some of the most exalted language in the scriptures about who Jesus is. We've already gone through 15 and 17. And this passage is just awesome. We're going to pick up the pace in weeks to come, but this 15 to 19 is so important. I've wanted us to spend some time on it. All right. Verses 18 and 19. Let's read it together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let's pray as we, we think about these verses. Father, we love you. Lord, Lord I just pray that Jesus, Jesus, you would be huge in our lives, that you would be the focus of our lives, or that you would just be preeminent, that you'd be first place, that we'd realize that all life and strength and, and, and everything comes from you and that we would want to be united with you closely, Lord. So please, Lord, we beg you to allow our minds and our hearts to be fixed on you and give us understanding of what you're going to teach us today through your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, verse 18 says, He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. You probably know this, but the church is not the building. Now, we say that. We say, I'm going to church, and that's fine. But the church in the biblical language is not the building. The church is God's people. The church is the people of God that he has is, he is redeemed, the people of Christ. And so Paul, when Paul says that, that Jesus is the head of the body, the church, he's saying that he's comparing the church to a physical body, and he's saying that Jesus is the head. So there's a connection between the body and the head. And oftentimes you hear people say, and this is fine, to say that, that we are like the hands and feet of Christ, right? We are the hands that minister to people. We're the feet to take the good news uh, of who Jesus is to other people. So we're his hands and feet. We're his body. And Jesus often carries out his will in the world through the church, through his body. Okay? So one of the things that is so important for us to understand is this, that so we are like a body. Well, what that means is one of the things is we are to be in union with one another. We're to be in fellowship with one another. If I take my hand and remove my hand and put it on a table, it's not a good thing. It's a grotesque thing. It's isolated from the body. The hand is now dead. In the same way that we as believers are meant to be connected to one another in the body. Christians are not meant to be isolated. There is nothing in Scripture that says that a believer should be apart from a local church. It is like a part of a body being removed from the rest of the body. So Paul is saying that one of the things he's saying when he talks about the body, he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians, we'll look at it in a little bit, is that the, the church is made up of the people of God in fellowship and communion with one another, loving one another, committed to one another. 
And that's where life comes from. If, if my arm is removed from my body, it's dead. And that's the way it is for a believer who's separated from the body of Christ, separated from other Christians. We're not meant to be separated from one another. We're meant to be together, helping one another, caring about one another. And also the main thing is, is this, that Jesus is the head of the body. So what that means is that we are to be connected to the head, okay? When, when Paul says that Jesus is the, the head of the body, so we're to have union with the body, with other believers, and we're to have union with Jesus Christ, who is the head. So when, when Paul says that Jesus is the head, one of the things he's, he means by this is that Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the authority. Just like in ours, our head tells our bodies what to do, right? So my mind is telling my fingers to move around like this. My mind is telling my mouth to speak. If a, if a body's functioning properly, the body responds and obeys what the head tells the body to do. In the same way, the church should submit to the authority of Jesus and obey what the head Jesus is telling the body what to do. We are to obey. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the authority. We see this in the Great Commission. Jesus says, you know, go make disciples. But he also says, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. Jesus Jesus says, obey everything that I've commanded. That's the way the body is supposed to do, is to obey what the head tells it to do. So we're to obey Christ. At the transfiguration, at the transfiguration, Jesus is turned into shining bright like the sun. His clothes are white. And God the Father says from this cloud, he says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. We are to obey Jesus Christ. He is the head. He is the authority. And I would just ask you now, what areas in your own life are you not submitting to the headship of Christ? Just examine in your own life, whatever it is. I would just ask the Spirit to reveal to you now what areas of your life are you not submitting to the headship of Christ, the authority of Christ. All right, so the church is the body. The church is not only under the authority of Jesus, but the meaning of the word head here means source. So it means that Jesus is not only the authority, Jesus is the source of life and strength for the body, the church. Jesus is the source of growth for the church. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to see this, some more language about the body and the head. Ephesians chapter 4. It's to the left a couple of books. And go to verse 15. Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 15. Early, earlier in Ephesians, in verse 4, we read it today. There's one body. So we, we read that. We saw that Paul's talking about the church being the body. On well, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, Paul writes this. He says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. And he says what he means, into Christ. And then he talks about from Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church, the body, is to be connected to Jesus, and we are to grow through our connection with Christ, the head. He is the source of growth. 
He's the source of strength. So us as individuals and us as a church are to be connected to the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where growth comes from. Growth comes from the head, the Lord Jesus. Uh, it's just like in your own head, you've got a pituitary gland. I'm no biology expert, but you've got a pituitary gland that gives the body growth. This is what is responsible for the body's growth. It comes from the head. In the same way, Jesus is the one who gives life and growth and strength to the body, the church. Now think about this. What do you call a body that is disconnected from the head? One, it's disgusting, right? It's gross. But it's also a corpse. It's dead. A body that is disconnected from the head is a dead corpse. So this is what Paul is saying. Paul says that that Jesus is the head of the church. That means the church must have this vital, organic connection to Jesus Christ as the head. That is the only way you have life. That's the only way that a church can have life if it is connected to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the source of life. Um, Paul goes on to say, and we'll, we'll look at it in a little bit in Colossians, that Jesus is to be preeminent or supreme in all things or in first place in everything. So for the church, what this means obviously is that Jesus should be in first place in the life of the church. Jesus should be preeminent in the life of the church. So Jesus is the head. He's the source of life and growth. We've got to be connected. The church has to be connected. He must be first place. So what this means is that Jesus should be the primary focus of the church because he's the head. He's the source of life and growth. He's preeminent. And if a church, and I want you to hear this, if a church's primary focus is on anything but Jesus Christ, that church is dead. That is a dead church. It's a corpse because it does not have that connection with the source of life. If a church's primary focus is on politics, whether liberal or conservative, it doesn't matter. If a church's primary focus is on politics, that's a dead church because it doesn't have that vital connection with the head, the Lord Jesus. If a church's primary focus is patriotism, as much as I love our country, the church's primary focus cannot be on patriotism. It's a dead church. If the church's primary focus is on marriage and family or on education and schooling, or on finances, or whatever. If the church's primary focus is on anything but Jesus Christ, that church is dead. It's a corpse. And many of you have seen churches that are dead because they are not focused on Jesus Christ. They're focused on something else. And as wonderful as marriage and family and education and finances and all these things are, they can't be the primary focus of the church. Because Jesus is the head, he's the source of life, he's the one that we are connected to. And that's where church, the strength and growth comes from Jesus Christ. He is to be preeminent, he is to be first place. So, so this is a concern, this is for us as individuals, for me, for you, I want Jesus to be preeminent, I want to be first place in your life and as our life of a church. I want us to be, have this vital connection to Jesus Christ. Because if we lose that, we might as well close up shop. Jesus has got to be the primary focus of all that we do because he's the one that gives the life to the body. He's the one that gives strength to the body. All right? Let's go to the next phrase in verse 18. He is the beginning. Jesus is the beginning, 
the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, Jesus is the beginning. What does that mean? The Greek word is arche, like A-R-C-H-E. And we get the word archetype. So Jesus is the archetype. All right, what does that mean? That means that Jesus is like the original model. He's the original model, and everything else is sort of a copy of Jesus. Okay? So when Paul says that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, what he's saying is that we too, God's people, will be raised from the dead. And he's the archetype. He's the original model. And we're going to have resurrected bodies like Jesus. He's the firstborn, but his people will follow in the great resurrection. And one of the things I try to stress a lot is the importance of the Bible's teaching on the bodily resurrection of Christ and the bodily resurrection of God's people. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and the physical bodily resurrection of God's people. Because frankly, I just don't hear a lot about it in the church. Oftentimes we use language like dying going to heaven, something like that. You look in the scriptures, you're not going to find very much talk about dying and going to heaven. Why? Because the ultimate destination for God's people is not to have disembodied spirits in heaven. The ultimate destination, our final destination for God's people is here on earth. Now, it's going to be new. It's a new earth. Christ is going to transform it. But God, the, the ultimate destination for us is not to be disembodied spirits. Our ultimate destination is going to, it means resurrected physical bodies just like Jesus has. That's where it's all going to. That's the end game for where God is taking his people, to have physical, resurrected bodies. And so Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Okay, When Jesus died on the cross, his spirit was separated from his body. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His spirit goes, in, goes with the Father. His body now is a dead body. They take his body from, down from the cross, they wrap it up, and they put it in a tomb. Okay, On the third day... His spirit, Jesus' spirit was reunited with his body, and he was raised physically, and he was raised with a body that is different from the bodies that we have now. Jesus' body was raised in a physical body, but it's imperishable. It's not subject to decay. It's immortal. It can't die. It can't be injured. It can't get weak. It can't be subject to the effects of aging, anything like that. That's the way Jesus' body is. And when Jesus returns, he's going to give us bodies like that, his people. And our spirits will be reunited with these glorified physical bodies, but we will be raised up in these these imperishable bodies. And Paul talks about this a lot. The Scriptures talk about about Jesus' bodily resurrection and the resurrection of God's people in many places. So Jesus has been raised from the dead in a body that's not affected by the fall or or sin or anything like that, and that's the way we're going to be. Now, right now, Jesus is the only one Ponder this one. Jesus is the only one in the universe who has a physical body that is imperishable, that is immortal. Every other creature, all of creation, all people is subject to to death, decay. Everything is perishing except Jesus. He's the only one who has this type of body. And so what, what Paul is saying is it's sort of like this. I like to think of it this way. Imagine all creation being, being subjected to the fall and being like being in black and white, like an old black and white movie, and everything you see is in black and white, okay? All people, creation, everything in the universe, except for Jesus. 
Jesus is in living color, and he's the only one. But when he returns, he's going to make everything into living color. He's going to raise his people. He's going to change creation. And what that means is for God's people, we're going to live in a physical place. I've stressed this before. We're going to live in a physical place, this earth, and it's going to be renewed. And we're going to have physical bodies. We're going to have work that we love. And we're going to have perfect, loving relationships with the people of God with no sin. And we will worship Jesus face to face. And the place that we will live in will be prettier than any place that we could ever imagine. So if you see movies like Lord of the Rings or something like that, which is beautiful scenery, imagine living in a place like that. And that's the way we're going to be as God's people. And there'll be no sadness, there'll be no depression, no anxiety, no worry. There'll be no misunderstandings. Our friends, we'll have these relationships with friends that'll be just incredible. All our relations, no matter the greatest relationship on earth, the greatest marriage, whatever, every relationship on the new earth will be better than that. Can you imagine just being in a place of joy constantly, love constantly, beauty that we can't imagine? That's what we are going to. And Jesus is the firstborn, but when he returns, he's going to transform all this. I would ask you too, just if you're skeptical of Christianity, if you're skeptical of Jesus' resurrection, and when I was an agnostic, I was, I would ask you, I want you to think about a couple of things. One, one, if you're investigating Christianity, I would ask you to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. That's, a, that's the best place to start, I think, focusing on the resurrection of Jesus. But also, think about two things if you're skeptical about Jesus' resurrection. One, orthodox, conservative, devout Jews at this time and all times previous and all times since believed in one resurrection. They did believe in a physical resurrection. They believed in one general resurrection at the end of the age that all people would be raised up. All right, now ponder this. How quickly do orthodox, devout Jews change their beliefs? They don't change their beliefs. They don't. You, you can talk to orthodox, devout Jews today, and they pretty much believe what orthodox, devout Jews believe in the first century. There's no change in their belief, okay? So, so they believe that there is one general resurrection at the end of the age. No one had ever taught that there would be sort of a two-stage resurrection, that the Messiah would be raised bodily, and then after that, people would be raised. There had never been anybody taught that, ever, Okay? Why is it then, immediately after the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, a large group of devout Orthodox Jews completely changed their understanding and their beliefs about the resurrection? They, began, they believed and began teaching that the resurrection would happen in two stages, that the Messiah would be raised bodily first, and then after that, which is what Paul's saying here, the firstborn, after that, then there would be the res- general resurrection. So how can you have a large, why? How can you explain how a large group of devout Orthodox Jews completely changed their belief in the resurrection immediately after the resurrection of Jesus? Ideas take a long time to change, to be adopted by a group of people. Do you know that? So so if you think about the idea of uh, the, the earth going around the sun, we're talking about the solar system, the earth going around the sun. Until the 15 or 1600s, pretty much everybody, everybody believed that the earth was the center of the universe and everything went around, right? Until it was Copernicus and then what, Galileo, Galileo, Galileo. Uh, after that, then that people started believing that, that they had promoted this idea that, that, there would be, that the, the sun was the center of the solar system. 
okay? But it did, not everybody believed that right off the bat. It took generations, hundreds of years for people to change their belief. That's just the way that, that ideas are. They take a long time to develop. So if you're skeptical of the resurrection, again, I would ask you to, believe, to, to question why is it that these Orthodox Jews changed their belief about the resurrection, a fundamental teaching of Judaism, in it, just like that? How could that happen? I think the only explanation is they saw Jesus raised from the dead. They saw him. They talked with him. They touched him. And that's how they understood. So they changed their beliefs immediately. Another one is this. If you question the resurrection of Jesus, at that time and ever since then, people build shrines and memorials to famous people. At that time, if, if you were even a medium sort of famous rabbi, people would remember your gravesite. They'd build a shrine and memorial. There were dozens of these around Jerusalem. Uh, we see this today. Our, our family went to, uh, to Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago. You go to Arlington National Cemetery. You see John F. Kennedy's gravesite here, President Kennedy's gravesite. People are remembering. There's a shrine to him, sort of, a memorial. You go over here, General George Marshall. You know, so there's famous people, and they remember where they're buried. Same thing happened in first century Israel. Why did the followers of Jesus not build a shrine or memorial to Jesus' gravesite? We have no idea where Jesus was buried. They just guess. They take you on a tour and they say, we think he was buried here, but we're not sure. Because there was no memorial or shrine built to Jesus, this very famous rabbi. Why? Because he was only in there from Friday to Sunday. He was barely in there. Why would you care if, if you're talking with Jesus, okay? He's making them breakfast. He's saying, Peter, you want your eggs scrambled or what? You know, He's making them breakfast. Why would you care about where he was laid in the gravesite? So he, he, he is the, re, the only explanation for these things is that Jesus was actually raised bodily from the dead. So again, if you're a skeptic, I'd ask you to think, consider the resurrection and think about these things. All right, verse 18. Let's go on to the next phrase in verse 18. That in everything... He, Jesus, might be preeminent. Paul is saying that one of the reasons that Jesus has been raised from the dead is to show that in everything he should be preeminent, that he should be supreme. Another way of saying it is that he should be in first place. He should be in first place. So Jesus is not just a man. He's God. He's preeminent. He's supreme over everything. And it's only right that he would have first place over everything. So he must have first place in my life, he must have first place in your life. He must have first place in the life of the church. This is what we're made for, for Jesus to be preeminent, for him to have first place in all aspects of our lives. And then verse 19, finally, this little phrase, Paul says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The false teachers around Colossae said that Jesus is only partially divine. So they were saying that Jesus is an angel. And they were saying this, to, to experience the fullness of God, you needed to do things like worship angels. You needed to have this sort of secret knowledge. You needed to do these strict practices. And if you did this, then you would have experienced the fullness of God. But they said Jesus is not fully divine. He's only partially divine. He's sort of like an angel. And so what Paul is saying is no, no, no. Paul is stressing that Jesus is God and that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. That Jesus is fully divine. And the way that you experience the fullness of God is through a relationship with Jesus. Right? 
because he's God. What Paul is alluding to here when he says that, that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, if you think about dwelling or dwelling place of God and fullness or filled, Paul's alluding to the Old Testament where the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God under Moses or the, the temple was filled with the glory of God. So what God would do, like there was a time when Solomon dedicated the temple and they dedicate the temple and the, the, this Shekinah glory, this visible manifestation of the glory of God filled the temple. So what Paul is saying is now the tabernacle and the temple, those were just signs pointing to Jesus because Jesus is the fullness of God. He is Emmanuel, right? Which means God with us. Jesus dwells in physical form. He is with his people. He has taken on flesh to become the fullness of God. He is God. He becomes fullness of God in human form. And he is the one that all the Old Testament things were pointing to. Tabernacles and temples and everything. So we don't need a tabernacle or a temple because we've got Jesus. That's where the fullness of God dwells. Turn with me to to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, very back of the Bible, and look at verse 22. This is talking about the new earth, the new creation, which is what I've been talking about. And what we'll see is that there is no temple in in the new earth. There is no temple there. Look at Revelation 21, verse 22. John's writing and he says, And I saw no temple in the city. Why? Why no temple? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no temple in the new Jerusalem. There's no temple on the new earth because the dwelling place of God is with man in Jesus. He's the Lamb. The fullness of God is right there. We don't need a temple. The temple was simply pointing to Jesus. He is the true temple. He is the true tabernacle where God meets with his people in all its fullness. Paul says the same thing in, uh, in Colossians 2, verse 9. Listen to this. This is Colossians 2, 9, later in the, in the book. He says, For in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So I think what Paul is saying is, look, if you want the fullness of God, you don't need to do these other things. You don't need angels or strict practices or whatever. You want the fullness of God, you need Jesus, and he is all we need. Jesus is all we need because he's the great and glorious God. So I'll wrap up with this. We need a bigger view of Jesus. We need to have a bigger understanding of Jesus. Jesus needs to be bigger and bigger in our minds and our understanding. He's the head We don't want to be dead corpses, right? We don't want to have a church that is dead. We need to be in union with Jesus Christ, who's our head. So our goal should always be to fix our eyes and our thoughts on Jesus, to have a big view of Jesus, and for Jesus to be preeminent, to be first place in our lives. And as we meditate on these truths, and what we can see is that Jesus is getting bigger and bigger. We see He's the sovereign one, And what this, in a practical way, what this does for us on a day-to-day basis is it means we can give all our worries over to Christ. We can give all our concerns over to Him. I'm going to make a confession to you. Don't get too excited. It's nothing earth-shattering, so don't get your hopes up. But I'm going to make a confession to you. 
And it's not surprising, I did not have a big view of Jesus sometimes during this past week. I just didn't have, there were times during the week when I just did not have a big view of Jesus. There were times this week when I felt like I had to be in control. There were times this week when I wanted certain things to go a certain way and they didn't go that way and it frustrated me and angered me. I was concerned and anxious about things because I wanted to be in control. So there were times when I was stressed and somewhat worried because I didn't know how things would turn out, and I want to be in control. And I didn't have a big view of Jesus, understanding that he is in control. And I thought if I lost control of this, that things would be really bad. That's what I thought. That is sin. You know that? That's a lack of faith. That is a lack of trust. And that seeing God is really, really small and seeing me and my circumstances is really big. Because what I forgot is that Jesus is in control. He's the sovereign God. He's the maker and sustainer of all things. I forgot that I needed to rest in him. So I needed a bigger view of Jesus this week. During this past week, I needed it. In this coming week, I need a bigger view of who Jesus is. To see that he is the sovereign God. That he's conquered death because he's the firstborn from the dead. That he is the head. That he's the source of life and strength for me and for you and for our church, and that he's got everything under control. And I can rest, this is what I need to remind myself in this coming week, that I can rest in his sovereignty and his goodness. I can rest in his sovereignty and his love. And you know what? There were times this week when you didn't have a big view of Jesus too. I'm not the only one. There were times this week that you wanted to be in control and you were frustrated. And Jesus just didn't appear to be the big sovereign God that he is. So we're in the same boat, right? And so this coming week and every day, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is big. He's the maker and the creator. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the head. He's the source of life and strength. He's in control. And when we do this, when we understand, we remind ourselves of this on a day-to-day basis, that Jesus is big and he's got this under control. When we do this, our anxieties, our concerns ratchet down a little bit. I was talking with a brother earlier. They're not going to go away, okay? I I woke up sometimes this this week. It happens to me sometimes. I don't know why. About 3.30 in the morning and my mind is racing. I'm thinking about all the things I got to do. It's like I'm stuck in neutral and the engine's going 7,000 RPMs. And it's just revving. And I'm laying there. I need a bigger view of Jesus. I need to see that he's got it under control. Every molecule in this universe, every circumstance, he has it under control. And I need to remind myself. And when I do that, I'll just be completely honest, that anxiety is not going to go away just like that. But when I do it, it is ratcheted down a little bit. You know that? When I remind myself that Jesus is big and he's got it under control, The anxiety, the concern, the worry is ratcheted down. And what happens with people when we fix our minds on Christ and we remind ourselves about who he is, our concerns and anxieties are reduced. Our faith and love for Christ grows. And in that, in all this, he gets the glory. We get the joy. We get the reduced anxiety. And everything works for his good when we do this. And our faith and our trust grows. And that's what I want for myself. 
And that's what I want for each one of you. And that's what I want for our church. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, you did not have to give us this word, this letter from the Apostle Paul. But we're so grateful that you did. That reveals just how big Jesus is. That he is the head, the source of our life. That he has conquered sin and death. That he's got everything under control. So help us to remember that, Lord, in the coming week. I pray this just wouldn't be a one-and-done thing on a Sunday morning, but that we would be people who constantly preach to ourselves the truth about who Jesus is and how awesome you are, Lord Jesus. Please transform us into people who love you more and trust in you more, who can give our concern. God, make us into people who, where we lay our concerns, our anxieties at the foot of the cross, and we don't pick them up again. And we understand that you are in control. And in so doing, you would get all the glory, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.